Good afternoon, everyone. Can money buy happiness? Can money buy happiness? Probably a lot of people think that it can, but many people who have more than enough money live empty, frustrated, and miserable lives. It's also true that learning to properly manage your money and keeping it in the proper perspective can, in fact, add a great deal to your enjoyment of life. You might ask how. Actually, there are several ways. First, wisely managing your money can help you avoid the curses of poverty, of chronic indebtedness, of never having enough to make ends meet. Secondly, godly money management can keep you from being enslaved to such evils as greed, avarice, miserliness, and lust for material possessions. Third, implementing a godly perspective towards money can help you reap the blessings inherent in exercising the principle, it is more blessed to give than to receive, as you read in Acts 20, verse 35. So let's look at each of these in greater detail. Contrary to common belief, poverty is not a trait of righteousness, and it is not a sin to be rich. In fact, God himself is rich inasmuch as he is the owner of everything. As we read in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, all that is in heaven and in earth is yours, O Lord. So God owns everything. He's certainly not poor. And he is also the one who makes it possible for others to be rich. As we read in verse 12 of 1 Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 12, both riches and honor come from you, meaning God. Both riches and honor come from you. We read of men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, and Solomon, who were all an example, who each one was an example of a man who worshiped God and was very wealthy. Having wealth and at the same time being able to use it wisely enhances life's joys and their gifts from God. As we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning with verse 19, Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 19, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. So riches and wealth and the power to enjoy those things are gifts from God. On the other hand, poverty is an affliction that often brings with it destruction and death. As we read in Proverbs 10 and verse 15, Proverbs 10 and verse 15, the destruction of the poor is their poverty. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. And often being in abject poverty is, gives rise to all kinds of ills and evils. There are many factors that can be involved in individual wealth or poverty. And some factors may be beyond what individuals have control over. 
But there are other factors which individuals can control if they have the knowledge and will. When we're talking about wise money management, we're really talking about managing yourself because self-control is the key to handling money wisely, or at least it's one of the keys, and this will become more and more evident as we proceed. Learning to save and saving at an early age, the earlier the better, can be an important factor in effective money management. But the natural tendency, especially when young, is to spend all you have on immediate and temporary pleasures. The Bible describes as foolish those who squander what they have. In Proverbs 21 and verse 20, Proverbs 21 and verse 20, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. And regardless of age, even if you happen to be older, it's not too late to begin learning lessons about wise money management and working to get your finances under control. In fact, I learned one or two things, if not more, in preparing this sermon. And I'm probably older than most of the people who will hear this. So we can learn new things no matter what our age is, and that includes learning about how to handle our money. The lowly ant is used in the Bible not only as an example of industriousness, but of wisdom in saving a portion of what is earned. As we read in Proverbs 6, beginning with verse 6, Proverbs 6 and verse 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So ants lay up and store things that they will need later on when times are hard. Joseph was inspired by God to save the grain in Egypt during years of plenty so that when years of leanness came, there was enough. As you can read in Genesis chapter 41, the principle of saving so that your money grows with interest is illustrated in the parable of the talents. In that parable, the Lord told the unprofitable servant, as we read in Matthew 25 and verse 27, the Lord told the unprofitable servant, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. If you began saving just $100 a month at age 20, assuming an average 10% growth rate annually compounded quarterly, you would have accumulated over a million dollars by age 65. In other words, within 45 years. You might ask, well, where are you going to earn an average 10% growth rate? Well, there are no guarantees, especially in today's volatile world. In fact, war and other calamities can wipe out any accumulated wealth very quickly and have for many people over the years. And the Bible predicts just such calamities as the end of this age approaches. In a day of God's wrath and judgment to come, the Bible prophesies, as we read in Ezekiel 7 and verse 19, Ezekiel 7 verse 19, they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Despite that possibility, 
actually more than a possibility it's going to happen someday. We just don't know when. But regardless, wisely saving and investing is a sound principle that can pay off in more ordinary circumstances. And so we should not assume that we should not plan for the future because we might think Christ will return and this age will end in just a few years. Some erroneously used such reasoning decades ago, foregoing having children, foregoing getting an education, not saving for the future, depriving themselves of the opportunity for a richer and happier life. And many of those people who made those decisions years ago have lived their lives, grown into old age, and quite a few of them have died. And Christ has not come yet. Many deceivers have come along claiming to know the day of Christ's coming, claiming to know the day of Christ's coming, and every single one of them has been wrong. So if you hear someone claiming that he knows when Christ is coming, then figure that there have been lots of others before him every one of whom has been wrong. So don't assume he's right. Now we can clearly see the signs of the times we're in, but none of us knows the exact time of Christ's coming. And none of us knows how many years out into the future it will be. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So the point is the principles that we're discussing today are valid today and will be valid far into the future, even after Christ returns. They'll still be valid. The wise approach is to plan as though you were going to live out your life as a normal lifespan, full lifespan in this age. At the same time, be ready at all times for Christ's return. As we read in Matthew 24, Matthew 24 and verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be you also ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So whenever Christ returns, we need to be prepared spiritually. Despite the uncertainty of the times we live in, wisely saving and investing is a sound practice that can pay off in ordinary circumstances. It generally does pay off unless as I mentioned earlier, catastrophic events intervene. Now, a typical bank savings account isn't likely to pay anywhere near 10% annual return. Putting your savings in a jar in the form of unstable currency such as the American dollar or any similar currency that is constantly losing value through inflation and devaluation isn't likely to make you wealthier over the long term. Indeed, it will tend to make you poor. True wealth doesn't come from government printing presses producing fiat money, and it doesn't come from entering numbers into a government database. 
True wealth doesn't magically appear out of thin air. True wealth comes from what is produced. And what is produced usually involves capital, labor, and resources. Those three things. And per perhaps other things as well, but at least those three elements generally is involved in producing wealth. Capital, labor, and resources. Capital is money gained or saved from previous production. Labor is productive work. Resources may include land or other material resources. And what it takes to produce true wealth is a lesson too many in today's world have yet to learn, including a good many politicians and probably even a number of so-called economists. How the, these elements are managed also makes a difference in the outcome as to the kind of wealth, if any, that is produced. Now, if you have a business, and if you have a business, that means that implies that you're producing something of value. If you have a business and, and you reasonably expect the business to grow, you may, by investing in your own business, achieve a real 10% annual growth rate or even more. If you work for a salary, which includes probably most of us, working for a salary implies producing something of value by your labor, which you would expect to be paid for. And with the wages you earn, you may consider the option of saving by investing, for example, in the stock market. When you do that, you're putting capital you've acquired to work in a productive enterprise. From This is from uh, an article called How to Invest in Stocks from the Fool.com website. And it says, quote, It might surprise you to learn that a $10,000 investment in the S&P 500 index 50 years ago would be worth nearly $1.2 million today. Stock investing, when done well, is among the most effective ways to build long-term wealth. So if you'd had $10,000 invested it in the S&P 500 50 years ago, it could be worth around one and a quarter million dollars today. Now, stock prices fluctuate significantly on a day-to-day -day or even a year-to-year -year basis. And sometimes the market gains and sometimes it loses value. But over time, and on average, stock values tend to grow. This is from an article called uh, The Average Stock Market Return Over the Past 10 Years from the businessinsider.com website. It says, according to global investment bank Goldman Sachs, 10-year stock market returns have averaged 9.2% over the last 140 years. Between 2010 and 2020, However, the investing firm notes that the S&P 500 has done slightly better than the, the historic 10-year average with an annual return rate at rate of 13.6% uh, in the last 10 years. That's from 2010 to 2020. Now, other sources may give similar but different figures. MeasuringWorth.com, for example, calculates that the annualized growth rates in leading American stock indexes from October 1, 2010 through September 30, 
2020 were as follows. Dow Jones Industrial Average, 9.74%. That's the annual average rate over the past 10 years. The S&P 500, 11.39%. And the NASDAQ Index, 16.8%. So, as I said, there's nothing guaranteed, but a 10% annual return in your investment is certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Investing in a stock market index and keeping it over a long term may in fact be one of the surest ways to saving and investing for long-term growth. Now remember that these figures are averages and could vary, vary significantly from your personal experience. Even if the rate of growth in your investments are less, however, say for example only 5% average per year, you can still build substantial wealth over time. Working and saving so you'll have plenty when later in life you're unable to work or simply want to be more financially secure is the most important principle in learning to manage your money. Another advantage of saving part of your money is that you're not as likely to have to borrow and be in debt. Now, there may be occasions when borrowing is necessary, if not desirable. For example, does it make sense to pay rent indefinitely to someone else for a place to live? or if possible, to buy a house with a mortgage and pay a similar amount monthly for property you can own in, say, 10 or 15 years? The answer may not be the same for everyone, but it is a question worth considering. Borrowing to start a business may or may not make sense, depending on the circumstances. Nevertheless, by saving diligently for anticipated needs or unexpected emergencies, Borrowing can be kept to a minimum, if not eliminated altogether. Remember, when you borrow, you put yourself in the position of being a servant to the lender, and where interest is involved, the lender is profiting off of your labor. As we read in Proverbs 22 and verse 7, Proverbs 22 and verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. By saving, you can put yourself in the position of the lender and owner who profits from the labor of others. A good plan if you are already in debt is to begin to work to get out of debt in a systematic way. First, change your spending habits. Put yourself on a budget. Start keeping track of every dollar you earn and every dollar you spend. Get rid of your credit cards and start operating on a cash basis. Or if you use a credit card, make sure to use one that does not charge interest if the balance is paid off monthly and budget to make sure the balance is paid off each month by its due date. Eliminate spending that's not absolutely necessary. There are 20 simple tips to how to save money You'll find on the website, DaveRamsey.com, it's, it's on an, an article, How to Save Money, 20 Simple Tips, at DaveRamsey.com, and it just gives you some practical, everyday ideas about ways you might go about looking for ways that you can save money. Plan your spending so you know where your money is going. Cut your expenses. Make sure your tithes and basic necessities are taken care of. As we read in 
Luke 16 and verse 11. Luke 16 and verse 11, Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? We read in Malachi 3, beginning in verse 8. Malachi 3 and verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now, and this is the Lord of hosts. If it will not open for you windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. So what God tells us is that he expects us to honor him with our substance, with our tithes and offerings, and we have an obligation to do that out of respect to the Creator and obedience to Him. And if we do that, He says He will bless us. Notice it does not say that He will make you rich right away. No matter how faithful you are, even if you tithe and give faithfully, that does not necessarily mean you're going to become rich in this lifetime. The Bible gives us many examples of people who actually did become rich, who were faithful, but it probably gives us more examples of people who did not become rich, like Anna the poor widow that is spoken of in the New Testament and others. But after seeing to your financial obligation to God and basic necessities, begin setting aside money to build an emergency fund, for example, $1,000, or if that seems out of reach, perhaps $500, and keep adding to it regularly until you have a reasonably safe cushion for emergencies. Once you've done that, start paying off your debts as fast as you can, beginning with the smallest. That's one of the suggestions of Dave Ramsey, who's a financial advisor. And others have a different idea, but research has shown that generally people are more successful if they start paying off the smallest debts first because that gives them an incentive when they get something paid off to keep going down that same path. You may have to get an extra job for a while in certain situations to help you get your debts under control. But the idea is to keep working at it until your debts are paid off and then start a savings program so you can avoid future indebtedness. And as you do your part, ask God for His guidance and blessings you might be surprised how god might bless you in ways that you don't expect saving money and managing money effectively requires moderation and self-discipline there are many ways in which a lack of self-control will lead you to poverty being lazy or irresponsible is one way as we read in proverbs 10 and verse 4 proverbs 10 and verse 4 he who deals with a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes one rich. An important part of living responsibly is planning and preparing for the future. If you read in Proverbs 21 and verse 5, Proverbs 21 and verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. So diligent, steady diligent effort tends to lead to success and plenty. But being hasty, that is being careless, 
in how you handle your finances or other affairs can lead to poverty. And this tells us that working hard is not always enough. One should also strive to work smart, which means plan your life. And if you're young, if you're just starting out, would be wise to plan to get an education so you can do what you want to do for a living and not just what you might have to do. So you might consider what type of career you would want to pursue. And uh, don't be hasty in making a choice about that. Don't be hasty in choosing a mate or any other important matter in life. Be open-minded and get the facts and study and think carefully about your future before you make a firm decision. Before marriage, it would be good to get to know yourself and any potential marriage partner well. Don't rush into marriage or let someone pressure you into it. Ask God for guidance and wisdom. Ask God to lead you into the choices you make. Remember, the character of the person you marry will drastically affect your future life. As we read in Proverbs 19, verse 14, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 19, verse 14. So include God in your plans. Ask God for guidance and to help you choose the right person to marry when that time comes. Before setting out on a career choice, learn about many careers. Analyze your interests. Find out where your strengths and weaknesses lie. Also analyze your options. What are the chances of your success in earning a living from various options you consider or you that you might consider? For example, majoring in wagon wheel making in trade school is not likely to have much chance of finding a employer or basket weaving or some other outdated, outmoded enterprise or something that's impractical like some of the college courses being offered in universities these days that are basically probably going to lead nowhere as far as a career is concerned. Pray diligently and ask God for guidance again. Planning properly is an important key to success in any endeavor And even if you're older and you're already married and in a career, planning for the future is still important, no matter how old you are. Being intemperate in food and drink has led many to skid row. As we read in Proverbs 23 and verse 11, Proverbs 23 and verse 11, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. The same is true of going to excess or practicing lawlessness in seeking any other physical pleasure. As we read in Proverbs 21 and verse 7, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. I was reading a little bit from a book just recently about a man who was telling about his profligate lifestyle and youth, and he wound up losing his job and being reduced to poverty through his excesses. And that's only one of many that have shared that same fate. Sexual immorality especially tends to result not only in dishonor, but in poverty. As we read in Proverbs 29, verse 3, 
Proverbs 29, verse 3, a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. In Proverbs 6, verse 26, by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. Many men and women have lost careers, families, and fortunes because of immoral sexual conduct. It's no accident that the greatest number of poor, as defined by the government, and thus receiving welfare assistance in the United States, are single women along with their children. Many of these children are born out of wedlock and women who are divorced, often because of sexual misconduct by one or both partners in marriage. More than half of the marriages in the United States end in divorce, and financial problems and infidelity are often listed as the two top reasons couples divorce. For decades, the percentage of -of out-of-wedlock births in the United States has been spiraling upwards. For the first time in the nation's history in 1999, the government reported that fully one-third of children born in the nation were born to unmarried women. By 2005, the percentage had climbed to 37%, according to government statistics. And we read from an article entitled Marriage, America's Greatest Weapon Against Child Poverty. Marriage, America's Greatest Weapon Against Child Poverty. We read this statement, and this is written by Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation on heritage.org. It says, quote, When the war on poverty began in the mid-1960s, only 6% of children were born out of wedlock. Only 6% in the mid-60s. Over the next four and a half decades, the number rose rapidly. In 2010, 40.8% of all children born in the United States were born outside of marriage. End quote. For decades, the percentage of births to unwed mothers in many major cities in the United States has exceeded 50%. As we read in an article entitled Non-Marital Births and Child Poverty in the United States by Isabel Sawhill and Brookings.edu website, it says more than half of children born in many large cities are born outside of marriage. In the city of Baltimore, Maryland, for example, it's reported in 2018 the rate of -of out-of-wedlock births was over 70%, over 70% in the city of Baltimore. And this is from an article titled, quote, Fix Baltimore with Fewer Out-of-Wedlock Births, published by the BaltimoreSun.com website. So these are figures affecting the United States, but other countries are facing similar trends. For example, we read in a, Article entitled, All Across Latin America, Unwed Mothers Are Now the Norm, published by NPR.org. It says, quote, Latin America is now the region that has the highest percentage of children born out of wedlock. In Colombia, 84% of all children are born to unmarried mothers. Argentina, Mexico, Chile, and other countries throughout the region have similar numbers, with well over half of all children born outside of wedlock, 
End quote. Many European countries also have shockingly high rates of out-of-wedlock births. In Belgium, Denmark, France, Norway, and Sweden, as well as some other European countries, the majority of births occur outside of marriage. On the other hand, it's interesting that in some 25 countries, as we read in an article entitled Out-of-Wedlock Births Rise Worldwide, and this is, this is true in many countries, but there are exceptions. In some 25 countries, it says, including China, India, and most countries in North Africa and Western and Southern Asia, the proportion of births out of wedlock is low, typically less than 1%. Typically less than 1% of births out of wedlock in 25 countries. Why would that be? It goes on to say in those societies, births outside of marriage carry strong social disapproval. So the problems we face that lead many people into poverty don't have to be the way they are. And they're not that way in some countries in the world today. Conceiving children outside of marriage and divorce produce a cycle of poverty as those who grow up in single-parent homes are much more likely themselves to become welfare recipients and add to the number of illegitimate or births out of wedlock. These statistics represent an ongoing moral, spiritual, and economic and social calamity of the first order that affects the entire society. Between 1965 and 1994, about 30 years, $5 trillion, not counting private assistance to the poor, had been spent on welfare in the United States. $5 trillion. Since then, despite the welfare reform measures passed by Congress in the mid-90s, welfare spending has continued to mushroom, and trillions more dollars have been spent on welfare. So personal behavior has a lot to do with prosperity, and whether not only individuals or even a society is prosperous or not. Well, you might say, well, why is the United States then so wealthy? Well, it's not because of we're necessarily a righteous nation. It's because we've been blessed by God because Abraham was righteous, not because we are righteous. But those days may be coming to an end. Money should not be your God. God should be your God. When you are motivated by an inordinate desire for wealth, by greed or lust for material possessions, you become a slave to those things. Many greedy, lustful, and miserly people have become rich, but to their own hurt and destruction. God may allow such people to prosper for a time, but the day of reckoning will come as we read in Proverbs 11 and verse 28, he who trusts in riches will fall. He who trusts in riches will fall. Trusting in riches, setting your heart on money or the things money can buy blinds you to deeper and more lasting values that make life really worthwhile. For this reason, the Bible speaks of the, the deceitfulness of riches. 
As the parable of the sower and the seed shows, those consumed with material interests shut themselves out of the kingdom of God, as is mentioned in Matthew 13 and verse 22. We also read in 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let him do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. We need to realize that money and everything in this world is only temporary. As we read in Proverbs 27, verse 24, Proverbs 27, verse 24, riches are not forever, but the kingdom of God is forever. As we read in Matthew Matthew 6, verse 31, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need or that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. More important than saving money, more important than acquiring material things, is treasuring your relationship with God and putting God first in your life. We read in Matthew 6, beginning verse 19, Matthew 6 and verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we need to ask ourselves, is your heart really in God's kingdom first and foremost? or is seeking to accumulate wealth in this world your primary interest? Now, it's not wrong to, as I have mentioned, to save and accumulate wealth as long as that's not what consumes your life. It's not as long as it's not what you worship. And as long as your heart is first in seeking God and his kingdom and his righteousness. God is the provider of all things. He has the power to make you rich or poor according to his will. As we read in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 7, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. And so it's to our advantage to put God first in our lives from many different perspectives But even in terms of ultimate prosperity, it would behoove each of us to give reverence to the God of the universe. When you worship God and put him first and he blesses you with riches, when that's the way you acquire wealth, you avoid the sorrows of ill-gotten riches. We read in Proverbs 10 and verse 22, Proverbs 10 and verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. 
The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. But it also tells us in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they were putting the wrong, wrong emphasis in what they were pursuing in their lives. God warns us, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought with him himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's not unusual for unscrupulous, fraudulent religious leaders, politicians, business people, or others to take advantage of the poor or gullible to make themselves wealthy. Jesus warned us to beware of religious leaders who devour widows' houses, as we find in Luke 20, verses 46 and 47. Today, there continue to be not a few religious leaders who make illicit emotional appeals and misuse scripture to persuade well-meaning but deluded people to empty their bank accounts and retirement funds and even give up their homes, not caring that they may be left penniless and homeless. But the poor are not to be robbed and plundered, but they are to be treated fairly and justly by all. No less guilty or corrupt politicians who enrich themselves at public expense while feigning concern for the poor and crooked business people who amass wealth through fraudulent business dealings. And God condemns all of these things. A great sin in America has been lax enforcement of immigration and labor laws, which allows the exploitation and oppression of the poor among us, including illegal aliens not only depress wages for the citizens, the poor citizens, but also illegal aliens in this country are often subjected to substandard wages and working conditions. Sometimes they are literally enslaved without recourse to justice. God commands, do not oppress the widow or the, or the fatherless, as we read in Zechariah 7 and verse 10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. These very sins were among those for which God sent divine punishment and scattered the ancient nations of Israel and Judah. As we read in Zephaniah 7 and verse 14, and God will do so again unless we as individuals and as nations repent if we are guilty of those things. The real meaning and pleasure 
your life will have will come not from what you get, not from what you acquire, but from what you give to God and to others. Jesus said in Acts 20 and verse 35, Acts 20 and verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Godly money management should enhance your ability to give to others and in that way enrich your life as well as the lives of others. You are commanded in Proverbs 3 and verse 9, Proverbs 3 and verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. As God is a giving God, so he wants us to learn to give as well. And that's one reason that he requires tithing and the giving of offerings. Jesus commended a poor widow who gave, not out of her abundance, but out of extreme poverty, as you can read in Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. The churches of Macedonia were also an example of generous giving out of deep poverty to supply the needs of others, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God takes notice of those who give liberally, and he is able to supply their needs, as we read in 2 Corinthians 9. What counts most with God is not necessarily how much is given, but the attitude and spirit behind the gift, as the poor widow's might is an example. And Jesus said she gave more than all of the wealthy people who were dropping their offerings in the box where they put their offerings at the temple. Giving should be done as privately as possible out of a pure motive, never to be seen of others or to seek the praise of men. I'd just turn over to that scripture and read it. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 1. Matthew 6 and verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. This is an allusion to a custom among the Jews where at times they would have someone blow a trumpet as they dropped an offering into the offering receptacle so everybody would notice them. Jesus said, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. One of the main reasons we should labor is to have something to give to him who has need, as we read in Ephesians 4 and verse 28, to have something to give to him who has need. And we read in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 that God loves a cheerful giver, not a petulant, reluctant, or bitter giver, but one who gives cheerfully. If you cultivate a generous giving spirit using what you have wisely to benefit others, you can expect even greater blessings in the future. We read in Proverbs 11 and verse 25, Proverbs 11 and verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. 
And we read in Luke 6 and verse 38, Luke 6 and verse 38, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And I might add, just so there's no misunderstanding, that those Rewards may not necessarily come in this lifetime, but they will surely come. In Mark 10 and verse 21, Mark 10 and verse 21, it says, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. So the more we give in a proper way now, the more we are laying up treasure in heaven to be rewarded when the time comes. So if you learn to share what you have with others and give generously with a pure heart, expecting nothing in return, God will see that in the end you want for nothing and you will find a meaning and purpose in life that makes money seem relatively unimportant.